I'm Dave White and I currently work at the University of Oxford but I just got a new job so that means you're watching a man whose brain is shifting around <laughs> um, and so in that sense this talk is going to it is, is not so much me talking about necessarily things that I've finished or a project uh, in of itself but more you know so there'll be some of that but some of it's going to be me talking about the, the, the sort of work in progress and, and, and where I'm going with things, which is why uh, it would be good if you've got if you've got any comments or questions or you want to refute utterly what I'm saying, then please do as I'm saying it rather than at the end, because there's a good chance I'll have forgotten what I said by the time we get to the end, okay? So we, I think we'll just keep rolling like that. So my, my current job at the University of Oxford is I co-manage a group called Technology Assisted Lifelong Learning, TOR for short. Uh, and we create and deliver a lot of online distance courses out of the University of Oxford, fully online distance courses. So I've got a team of people, they've got about two, there'd be about 2,000 students online all around the world doing our courses. Um, but I spend quite a lot of my time um, looking at how students engage with the web for learning in the broadest possible sense. Okay, so there's a little clicker here, let's see what. That was disappointing. <laughs> it's, technology. Got a, it's got a laser pointer and it's got, yeah, okay, I'm going to go for this instead. Right, so, I know that, see now what there is on the side of there is an on and off, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was off, so that was more me than the technology that, well was it? So, um, so I've never known a device that small to be, anyway, uh, so I know that this is the Society for Research for Higher Education, so I've immediately started with a quote that isn't to do with higher education, but my point is that, uh, you know, I've done some uh, research in late stage schools because if we're talking about digital literacy, if we're talking about the way that people engage with the web, if we're talking about that relationship between the physical and, and, and online, then, uh, you know, this is where... Um, students are developing those practices. Now, my personal opinion, not my research opinion, because I have no evidence for it whatsoever, is that a lot of the digital practices that, say, first-year undergraduates are using, they're actually developing when they're six, seven, eight years old. Okay, They're basic, but they're effective, but the students themselves quite often think they're not legitimate, so it puts them in a difficult position. Okay, So if we really want to think about, well, how do we, how, you know, contemporary student practices, then the web's been around long enough for you know, the, the 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds to have learned what they're doing when they were six, seven or eight years old. Now just as a, as a way of warning, this is a, an, this, it's not supposed to be legible by the way, uh, this is a kind of mind map of all of the kind of things that I've been thinking about for about two years. So this is why I'm a little bit confused, all right? So you can see that there. Um, uh, if, if I had three hours, I could probably just about make that make sense, but I that's by way of warning, okay? The sort of things we've actually been doing that are less scary is that uh, I was, uh, what was I, co-PI? Something like that, on a longitudinal research project that was US, UK, and Donna, who sat at the front here, was working on that. And uh, we, were, we interviewed students in the US and UK all the way from late stage secondary school all the way up through to faculty, as Donna would call them, we call them staff, okay? And uh, that was, you know, a lot of interview material which we coded and then you can do fun things with it um, like this. So this diagram represents 
a selection of kind of sources. So we were, we, we were talking about where, you know, where do you find your information from? Where do you go to to find your information? And this doesn't represent necessarily the amount that these sources are used or engaged with, but it represents the amount that they came up in the conversations we had. So a lot of what's in that Wikipedia, so the, the larger the block, the greener the block, the, 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 the more material there was in that particular code area and down through to the red here. So you know, in that Wikipedia block, an awful lot of discussion would be, I don't use Wikipedia because I've been told it's dodgy, if you see what I mean. So this is, this is, this is quite nuanced, what's inside here. But I think it's, I, I, you know, I, I quite like not using bar charts, if you see what I mean. I quite like, I think one of the, I, this, okay, this is a very personal opinion, but one of the things that, and, uh, uh, you know, this is taken on advice, given that I don't know what the next speakers are going to be talking about or presenting. Uh, but uh, I think that one of the challenges with sort of qualitative research is there's always this temptation to take it and turn it and to quantify it and, and this sense that somehow you can't possibly look like a proper grown-up researcher unless you've taken whatever the heck you've got and turned it back into numbers. I'm not massively, I'm, there's no harm in doing that, except fudging it slightly, but I, I, I'm interested in kind of methods that keep the qualitative qualitative, uh, but you can still draw something useful from it. It's a fine line, okay? So the project that I was referring to was called the Visitor and Residence Project, and I'm going to very quickly describe what that means, okay, because it informs a lot of the rest of what I've got to say. Um, so how many people know about Mark Prinsky's Digital Natives, Di Digital Immigrants? Yeah, okay. So he essentially said, um, that was about half of you, by the way. Uh, he said uh, about, well, over a decade ago that if you grow up with digital technology around you then you're native to it and if you're a bit older and you have to learn it when you're an adult then you're an immigrant into it. It was actually kind of a metaphor of language so the most useful way of thinking about his idea was that if, if you as, if as an adult you had to learn digital technologies, certain digital technologies, then it's almost like you're learning a second language. So you might become fluent, you'll always have an accent, do you see what I mean? It's, you're, you're going to think about it in a slightly different way. And that was, became enormously popular, that idea, partially because it was essentially a generation gap concept, and so people loved it. And they mainly loved it because, you know, at un in universities, it gave people the opportunity to say, yeah, the kids understand this stuff, we don't, we're dinosaurs, oh, panic. And, and also, the other side of it was, the kids understand this stuff, so we don't have to teach them about it. But clearly, you know, being, having hundreds of friends in Facebook doesn't mean that you know how to do higher education. But for some reason, these things were, were, were conflated for a certain amount of time. So I came up with this idea as a response to that. And this is a continuum. It's to do with how people engage online, their motivations to engage online. Okay? So it's not two boxes, uh, and it's not, you're not either a visitor or resident. It's, it's not about people. It's about motivations to engage. So depending on context, you might be more or less visitory or residenty. Okay? Um, and it's a sliding scale. There's some useful material around it on those URLs, and they'll reappear in the talk later on, depending on how fast you can type. Okay. So just very quickly, a visitor mode of engagement, the easiest way to talk about this is to say that if you're in visitor mode, then you, you're, you're, you're quite goal-orientated, and, you, and you're, you, you decide what you want to do, and you almost think of the web as like an untidy toolbox or an untidy shed with a collection of useful, potentially useful things in it. 
So you decide what you want to do, you rummage around in the untidy toolbox of the web, you find the tool that you think is going to work for you, you use it, and then you put it back and you close the lid. You don't leave any social trace okay, online. So you're literally visiting the web. So here's a, re here's a really extreme example. This is what all students want, I believe. This is not my idea, this is somebody else's. So uh, there's, a, there's a really, really good uh, platform. Search for anything, find exactly what I need, you're welcome, okay? <laughs> which, is, which is kind of how students perceive uh, Google and kind of, if they're honest, what they want the library to work like. So that's an extreme sort of visitor approach. Anything you do when you're searching and just consuming information would be at that visitor end of the, of the continuum. The resident end of the continuum is the one that, to me, is more interesting. It's not better or worse than the visitor end, but it's, but it's more interesting because it kind of represents new opportunities to engage with students, new forms of practice in some senses. And at the resident end of the spectrum, you're literally living out part of your life online. So you, instead of seeing the web or conceiving the web as a series of tools, you conceive it as a series of places or spaces where you can be present with other people. Okay. So, for example, if we talk about information, then you know some people like that sort of neutral, non-people way of mediating information, where they'll Google. We have got a great quote from a member of staff that said, "Google doesn't ju judge me." You know, so the reason he liked using it instead of talking to people was that he could he could get an answer without have, having to worry that he might be asking a stupid question. And it, it, it's interesting. I'm getting distracted, but it's interesting to me that. I believe that we're now at a point in time where it's socially unacceptable to not Google before you talk to somebody. Do you know what I mean? And you know that thing where you, where you, where you talk to somebody and they go, well, uh, let me just Google that for you. know, And they turn around and Google it and then you feel like an idiot. So I think that's shifted pretty quickly. What was I talking about? Resident. Okay. So here's an example of resident practice with students, okay, uh, whereby they, they created their own Facebook group. And is this? And in this case, that that sense of resonance. So the reason that they go into this group is because they want to talk to their peers. Okay. So when they want to find out information, they want to that they're going online to find a person to find out information. Okay. And the, and the credibility of that information is based around the credibility of that individual. Um, so that's that's just an example of, of of resident practice. But you know, tweeting, blogging, anything where you're leaving a social trace. Okay and everything in between, a lot of activities in the middle. So what we could do is we can add a vertical axis to that and start mapping, people can map their practice. So that's, I've, I've done quite a lot of that recently, I'll come back to that in a second. So people have used this idea, and, and in terms of the, the, this, this relationship between the physical and the, 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 the digital, the virtual, the online, I don't like using the term virtual for some reason, I don't know why, I think it's because it always sounds like not quite. Do you know what I mean? Like the physical's real and the virtual's, yeah. you know, and that's part of the problem, you know, because I, I did, in terms of the, of the resident end of the spectrum, I did some work on virtual worlds some years ago and people would, uh, people would always say, well, I don't want to have a profile in a virtual world because I've got a real life. I don't need a virtual life. And I'd say to them, well, when, you, when you're talking on the phone to your mum, is that not real? Because that's a digital connection with digital... And a lot of it came down to what was culturally normalised. You see what I mean? And I think we're, we're getting to the point where it's not weird to be on. Fa it's not weird to play out a certain amount of your life online. You know, if you're in Facebook and that's where some of your life takes place. Do you see what I mean? And that's and that's that's part of the shift that has happened. Okay. So instead of having a life in the physical world and representing it in online. 
you're actually living part of your life online. And that's what it means to be resident, okay? Uh, and that's a big deal, I think. So some people have taken... That's a scary diagram, isn't it? It looks like some sort of virus or something. But <laughs> people have used that idea in the past. So this is Alan Can, who's based at Leicester University. And that's not a visitor and resident map. That's a network map of probably his Google Plus account. Okay, so you can see these different clusters. I think the one at the top some, like, Formula One or some sports thing that he's in. So you can see how they're in different blocks. And what he did was he used a survey on his students and then mapped the responses to the continuum, the visitor resident continuum. And he used Google Plus with his students. So he could, he could then map across and say, well, this person seems to be more predominantly, you know, comfortable with resident modes of engagement and their Google Plus network map looks like this and you could start to draw some interesting conclusions okay you don't you don't agree with me no don't. i'm just amazed that there's that much activity on google plus yeah <laughs> well, well there, there was a fair amount i mean he's he, he what he did was he made it part of the way that he taught mm -hmm. so you end up with this scenario whereby there's a lot of his students were resident but some of them were resident because they had to be mm -hmm. so they were like false they weren't really living out what yeah. they were doing. They were doing it because they'd been told to do it. Okay, um, but his survey got to that. Anyway, the result of his the result at which he publishes a paper is that even within a very narrow cohort of students, because they're all um, studying some sort of biomechanical thing. I'm not a scientist. Uh, <laughs> was um, that there was a fair amount of distribution across the across that continuum, okay? So it's interesting to consider whether people in certain discipline areas are likely to be more comfortable with being visitor or more comfortable with being resident. But it, quite often you get this, this a much broader spread than you'd expect. So another thing that you can do is, this is where I've taken an interview transcript and uh, mapped it to that um, grid. And this is not unusual, that there'd be a relatively small amount, or in this case, none, uh, activity in that resident institutional quadrant. Because, you know, it, higher education institutions don't tend to, in, to traditionally engage students in that manner, okay? For traditionally, higher education, it is a fairly visitor kind of activity in that you'll sit in a lecture, you'll go to the library and you'll read a book. Obviously, pedagogies vary, and I think they're shifting. But this quadrant tends to be the one that's quiet. So, and just to come back to that idea of the physical and online, is it is possible to map um, physical spaces as well. So sometimes when people go through this mapping process, they'll put the physical library in here or they'll put the lecture theatre in. Okay, so I think the concept, that visitor-resident concept, um, also works in if you look at it in terms of the physical environment of the institution as well. And one of the heritages of the idea was actually um, comes from an art and design uh, heritage whereby the person who wanted to use it realised that historically his students had all been in the art space sort of studio where they could all sort of accidentally, almost, almost in an ambient way, pick up on each other's practice because they'd walk past each other's desks in the morning. And then as the digital began to emerge, they all went to the computer labs and they're all working separately you see what I mean? And so they stopped being resident in that sort of artistic space and they all ended up in little boxes and he wanted to try and find ways to bring them back together again. Um, so what, we've did, uh, what I've been doing, and Donna's been doing some, some of this as well, is um, running that mapping exercise with a whole variety of different people 
students, staff, um, mainly, well, up to this point, mainly as part of conference sessions, workshops and things like that, so not strictly for research. I mean, a lot of what I do is very practice-focused. And you end up with, with maps like, like this. Here's a, here's a good example. So in this case, we've got somebody, this is a member of staff, who has a very um, distinct life outside of the institution and inside the institution. So black, she decided to use colours, okay? Colours are your friend in these sort of processes. And she decided to use black for her work and uh, red for the stuff that she did outside of work, which was quite interesting. She, so um, she has kept that very separate, right? Um, Here's an example of a student who has again sort of interpreted the mapping process along lines that was useful for them. And these colours here indicate, I think the orange indicates um, the, the amount, the extent that they use those spaces or platforms for learning and red represents whether they get paid or perhaps it's the other way around. But again, they've given it certain, the context becomes very important. This one was fascinating to me. This is um, somebody whose handwriting is about on the level of mine, actually. And um, they're a foundation level student, okay? And what was interesting about this for me is, you know, we, we get quite hung up or we get quite focused on the idea of role and identity and different roles and identities, et cetera, et cetera, communities of practice, these sort of things. Because this student was so early in their educational career, they didn't have separate, they didn't have an identity that was personal to them and an identity, a version of themselves which was a learner identity and a version of themselves which was a professional identity. They were just them. So that vertical axis was almost meaningless to them. They just said, well, I use these six or seven platforms and I just do whatever in them whenever. They had absolutely no concern about the idea of different elements of their lives getting mixed up. And I think that this is, again, one of the things that we see that's very significant between the idea of the, of the physical and the, and the digital is that obviously in terms of student practice the physical environment your mode of operation uh, what you were trying to achieve how you were approaching something was quite often geographically related so you go to the library to do certain things you go to the lecture theatre to do certain things you'd go to the coffee shop to do certain things you'd, you'd stay at home to do certain things okay and so the geographical location was somehow tied to what you were trying, you know, the, the, the job you were trying to get done. Uh, whereas now, anywhere with Wi-Fi is the same place, okay? And so we start to see maps like this. We start to see that kind of convergence. And so when students are physically on campus, they could be conceptually anywhere if they've got a digital device in front of them. And I think sometimes... Um, this is not a very, this is much more practice than researchery concept uh, comment, is I think sometimes as institutions we're too keen to try and keep those geographical distinguishing, di di you know, like if you're in a lecture you can't look at your phone because you might be looking at Facebook instead of, do instead of doing what, I don't know. But, you know, we're uncomfortable about that convergence that the digital brings in terms of practice and I think we've just got to <laughs> give up being uncomfortable about it because it's happened. Um, so that was, you know, this sort of stuff came, this sort of stuff was just fun, alright, it wasn't technically research data, I can't even remember who these people are exactly, it was just, it was just a fun thing to do at a conference. But more recently I'm leading on an HEA project, um, which is to do, which is called the Challenges of Residency, 
and we've got 17 institutions from all over the UK who are running that mapping process with their students and, and the people that we've, that, that we've invited to be part of that project, well they've been to be part of that project, mm -hmm. they're all proper on the ground teaching practitioners that have their own cohorts of students, okay. Um, some, you know, sometimes it's th those are the people that are quite difficult to get hold of because they're busy teaching, okay, so I was really glad when they turned up. And what they're doing is going back to their home institutions, running the mapping process with their students, and then we're going to gather that together. And part of the point of the project is to um, help those institutions get a sense of what their students' practices are. Okay. So obviously, an awful lot of what I'm talking about here is really how do you find out what students are up to when they're learning? It's actually quite a difficult question now um, because they've got so many options. So part of the part of the focus of this project is that is to is to help a bunch of institutions get a better sense of what's happening so that they can evolve their practice. The other part of it is looking at well, uh, what are the what are the most significant factors that are likely to influence the way that students engage online for their learning? Is it discipline? Is it gender? Is it the year they're in at school? at school, at university, I'm getting a bit schools focused these days. And just just on Monday, I made this, which yeah. I call my Illuminati, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the Dan Brown approach to research diagrams. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's uh, so yeah, I apologize for that. It's, what I've done here, because it's all very, when people do the mapping process, I think that, that the, that the, a lot of the value that comes out of it is not the map, but it's the discussion that emerges, okay? And that's why it's nice to do it face-to-face -face and in groups. Um, so whenever we've done it, within about two or three minutes, people stop talking about technology and they start talking about practice and motivations, okay? And that's where it becomes valuable. That's fine. So the individual maps are fine, but I'm trying to work on ways of, of, of getting more of a kind of holistic sense of what's going on so let's you know for across a whole co cohort across a whole department and what I've done here is I've taken 27 student maps that come from the same cohort and layered them up on top of each other and made them into this kind of heat map so that you can sort of see where the predominant modes of engagement are um, and you know the value of this is yet is yet to be seen and I think it is incredibly local and context-based so if, when I show that to the people that teach that course, I think that there's a good chance they'll be able to interpret that and get a lot out of it. For me, all I see is, well, it's mainly visitory and there's some stuff here and here. The other element that I think is interesting as well is there are a few people operating here and it would be good to find out who they are and ask them what they're doing and why they're doing it. And maybe there's an opportunity there for students to share practice. You know, if there's unusual, if, the, if, if that's an uncommon practice, then perhaps they could talk about why they choose to operate in that, in that part of the continuum. Obviously, they're not thinking about it that way I am, but you see what I mean. What time is it? 12 o'clock. How long have I got? Another 15 minutes. Okay, that's good. It, I was, in your session. What? In, in, in the, the session as a whole, yeah. I'm, no, I'm plowing along pretty fast here. It's <laughs> just I'm always surprised that anybody lets researchers talk in a room without a clock. It always seems... <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, the other thing that um, I'm trying to do at the moment is, and again, this is not supposed to be legible, okay? So it's just, uh, it's, it's, it, let's imagine it's a piece of art, okay? Um, 
it's one of the things that I find, and again, this is this is where I think um, you know, in terms of research, um, I think that the the transition from of you know, research-informed practice is easy to say and difficult to do. Okay, and what I've found recently is that people are reasonably happy with these sort of relatively abstract concepts of things like visitor and residence and modes of engagement and things like that. They kind, you know, people kind of are quite happy to discuss that. And so we can talk about it conceptually. In principle, that's not a problem, especially around the mapping. The one thing that I think that, that people struggle with is that is they say, okay, I understand what it means to be what, it, what, this, what this means in terms of practice to be operating this quadrant. But I don't actually know what that looks like. What are people actually doing? What does that mean? You know, when people sit at a computer, what are they actually doing when they're operating that quadrant? I get that maybe they're using Twitter or that they're doing it, but you know, what does that look like on a day-to-day, -day nuts and bolts, on-the-ground basis? So if I, I zoom in there. So what I did was I, I, I whizzed around the quadrant and I wrote down exemplar ideas of what practice in that kind of territory looks like, okay? And I made some notes of some of the participants that I knew were doing it. And then I gave it to a very friendly research assistant in America and said, can you go through all of our data and can you collect together examples of where people are operating in this way in these areas? Because I think part of what I want to do next <coughs> is to say, here's what activity, here's what engaging in this territory looks like is somebody talking about what they do okay so I think we're quite good at saying hey you know if you start blogging it will be great for your learning for X Y and Z and it will be it'll be fantastic if you're an academic for your research profile etc etc but quite often we don't just show people what that practice looks like you know what people operating in that area are doing Okay. Perhaps I just perhaps I just don't get out enough. Um, so I want I I think that that's I think that that's what I'm trying to say. In higher education, people are very happy to talk conceptually, and quite often forget to talk about what that practice really means. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say here. So that's a job that I need to do. Um, and by way of saying that I actually you know walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Um, a lot of the stuff that we've been working on, we've deliberately tilted towards a kind of practitioner sort of... Um, so we're taking that research and we tried to put it in a form that people can pick up and work with, okay, within their own institution, within their own context. So there's, there's a JISC um, info kit which goes through some of the major themes that have come out of that project with a very practitioner focus. So it literally says, here's a theme that came out, learning black market, okay? Um, but here's what that might mean if you're in a library context. Here's what that might mean if you're a student. Here's what that might mean if you're a researcher. Just to try and always context, 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 really, to try and make it as usable as possible. And that info kit also contains basically a kind of quick guide to doing a mapping process for yourself, right? Uh, the other thing, oh, the other thing <laughs> is, <laughs> is, is, yeah, is my, 
you know, I'm not technically a researcher, so so um, I probably I don't know if an alarm goes off in the building or something like that at this point. <laughs> I'm sure it doesn't. Um, and I, so, I'm, as I say, I'm quite interested in people developing and evolving their practice within institutions. So I, uh, I spend a lot of time making videos and and waving my arms around rather than necessarily writing papers. And and I think that you know if I'm talking about resident practice, then it's kind of important that I operate within that environment as well. Uh, also, I'm much better at um, talking on camera than I am at writing, so there's that aspect to it as well. So, um, the, I've made a couple of videos that kind of discuss the idea, and I think that, you know, I've I found that to be quite encouraging. That works quite well. I mean, people pick that up, they, they look at that stuff and they respond to it. It's nice to, I mean, this is me as a, as a practitioner myself. It's nice to know that people are using my stuff to do things, okay? That's very much what I'm interested in. Um, so very quickly, because I've probably got about seven minutes, does anybody want to ask me any questions? I'm, I'm going about a thousand miles an hour, but you're all clever people, so there's going to be no problem there. Um, the, is there any, any questions at that point? Yeah, the, yeah. The, the maps are very interesting, I think, mm. but correct me if I'm wrong, you, you were talking about um, discussing this with cohorts of um, actual students and staff yeah have you explored the um, distance learners looking at that uh, lower quartile yeah uh, I, I, I think the answer is not yet but there is a delivery mode uh, option here so the participant information I'm collecting includes is it predominantly face-to-face -face? is it blended is it distance um, I think in terms of that that quadrant that's quite often empty, that is that's really important for fully distance online learning, um, and I know that from my group and the other stuff that we do. In that, I think in terms of online distance learning, we're quite good at delivering the curriculum, but we're not that good at delivering a student experience, which is clearly more than the curriculum. And there's all sorts of ways that you could do that, and all sorts of technologies. It's interesting to consider that relative to uh, the connectivist MOOCs versus the, 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 the newer MOOCs, if you see what I mean, if you, if you know that, that territory and the kind of philosophy of engagement behind there. I think it, it, the, the, the difficulty is that it's quite difficult to engage people within that, within that quadrant at scale online. So one of the things that I was interested in, and I ran a big live online synchronized event that anybody could turn up to last year out of Oxford, I'm interested in the concept of what I call conversation at scale. <coughs> How do you create discourse? How do you create that sense of a connection between people fully online when there's 400, 500, 600, 700 people? Because one of the things, and I talk about it in terms of eventedness, which is a word that I completely made up. but you know, people denigrate the face-to-face -face lecture, but it's highly event. You feel like you've been at an event, okay? And I think sometimes that's that the value of that is lost or not appreciated when we go online. And as when you go fully online, the focus of the institution is content delivery. And if you're not careful, students become alienated because they don't have a sense of belonging that you get in those more resident modes of engagement. So that's one of the reasons I'm interested in those resident forms of practice because I think they're absolutely crucial in terms of students' experience. And it's, I know that's a slightly corporate term, but you, you understand what I mean as beyond the curriculum. 
Um, so I haven't got there yet, but I know why I'm interested in it, if you see what I mean. Are there any other questions at that point? Yes. Is, uh, building on that question, um, uh, my three, uh, three of us here, we're involved with distance learning and with work-based learning. And so again, it's that question about that lower quadrant in that area, about mm. how, what, what, what are we finding out about people who are not only students but who are working and living, yeah. being students, and who are also potentially um, uh, bringing the practices from learning into the workplace or from work workplace into the yeah. learning environment or from home, you know, and so, so it's that sort of... Can I use that as an opportunity yeah. to do the next bit? because you've done that thing whereby you're talking about the thing I'm going to talk about next, <laughs> which I'm very pleased about. So what you're describing, we descri we talk a ridiculously long word. It would be good at Scrabble. I, no, that wouldn't work, would it? Decompartmentalisation. So it's the idea that, that, that when you move from the physical to online, so as I say, with the physical, quite often your mode of engagement was, was defined by the literal geographical place that you were but now everything it's just all in tabs so when we ask students uh, you know you spend quite a lot of time online each each week how much time do you spend learning and how much time do you spend socializing quite often they say well I don't know because I've just got two tabs open you know what I mean I, 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 could, I couldn't tell you they're the same thing it's all mixed up um, and so we it's that, that idea of convergence I think is really really significant okay and that's partly the sort of reason for it, is that you know, people are prepared to be more resident. I think what I want to do, and I'll do this very quickly, because I'm sure that I'm almost out of time, is this concept of disintermediation, which I put hyphens in, I don't know, for the hard of reading. Um, I'll, I'll go straight to this here. This fascinates me, and it, and it is this tension between professional, per personal, and student, you know, practice as a learner and how these things could potentially be, have very positive influences on each other, in each other and yet people are tentative about it in terms of role. So if you look closely at um, all of these Twitter bots, I went through my, the people that followed me on Twitter and th I picked these six out about the first 20 people. They all say these views are my own, views are not my own, some of them are ridiculous, uh, views not my own, views my own and nerdy. Okay. And this, this fascinates me. I mean, this is from a staff perspective, but it could apply to students in that I know that these people talk about work all the time. Okay? So if they're talking about work all the time, but the views are their own, then what is the view of the institution? The institution is made up of a bunch of people. So why is there this tension? I mean, I know why there's that tension, but I think it's one of the fascinating things where we move out of the physical and into the digital is that role convergence, I think, is one of the things that people are finding very difficult to negotiate. Okay? And I happen to know of somebody who works for a big organisation who had a Twitter account for seven years or something like that. And one day, his organisation suddenly said, can you stop talking about your hobby because it's not very professional? And, uh, <laughs> and you're like, well, what right have they got to... But, you know, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Um, and then you get organisations that will do like a top-down social media policy that say, if you're tweeting, then please do it this way. And you sort of like, well, how, you know, wh where, where are the lines between these things? And I think students have a similar tension, especially if they're incoming students, whereby their main persona that's resident will be purely social. 
and it will slowly morph into a learning persona and then maybe a professional persona. How do they control that? Do they have a Facebook where they're just with their friends and they have a LinkedIn, the anti-social social network, uh, <laughs> where, they, where they're professional? You know, how, how do they, how, how, how compartmentalized are they? Because uh, in my experience, unless you are very, de unless you're very deliberately compartmentalized, the technology will encourage your, all your different roles to merge, okay? Um, and then the last thing I want to talk about, and I will do very quickly, it all comes back to credibility for me. I think it's a really useful way of looking at all of this, okay? So um, I, I, I go with this quote. I think it's up for debate, but I think it's an interesting way of looking at it. And I think it's something that the higher education sector is struggling with, okay? What it means to be credible and authentic. Now, this whole new environment that you can be somebody in, i.e. the digital, not the physical. Um, and here's a little, some touchstones for, you know, credibility in a sort of traditional institutional sense of higher education, okay? Here's some out there in digital land. They're, they're extreme examples. And I think what's really interesting to me and what comes out of the mapping and the research, if you really want to strip it all back, is, is the way that, that credibility is generated and what it means to be authentic now that the web exists and how there are so many more options for students and for staff to be authentic, which are not controlled by the institution, they're outside of the institution, like tweeting, unless you get told off for it. And I do see these as two currencies, okay? So this, this currency here is, is a solid currency that's been around for hundreds of years, it's like sterling, okay? And its value's pretty fixed, it doesn't fluctuate that much, but it's, 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 you know, it's solid. This is much more like Bitcoin or something like that. And its value changes quite radically depending on what context you're in. Now, what intrigues me is the exchange rate in this direction is very favorable. So if you come from a fancy institution and you're a professor and you go out online and you start saying things, that's quite, that, that means quite, that's very authentic, okay? And certainly students look to the provenance of URLs and the provenance and who's talking, that doesn't change. The exchange rate in this direction is extremely poor, but shifting. So more and more often you will see people described as authentic because of the amount of Twitter followers they have. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, it's pretty extreme, but I've seen examples of, 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 of there was a guy on the cover of that magazine, Intelligent Life, and, it, and I, I'd never heard of him, but it said, the guy with 20 million Twitter followers. They didn't say, he's got a doctorate in X and he works for the University of Oxford. They said he had 20 million, because it was more meaningful. So I think you see, increasingly, you see examples of, of that exchange rate. And I know people that have been invited to dinner at Oxford because they had a heck of a lot of downloads on iTunes U, okay? So, you, uh, and that's where I'm going to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Is it? Okay. I probably have